Welcome to Second Win, the podcast where we uncover the stories, methods, and modalities of women and men who have found their purpose while walking this earth. Sometimes they found their second win by accident, sometimes by hardship, and sometimes by intent. There is always something to learn from others and really isn't finding our own purpose what we are all looking for. I know I am. And that's why I'm hosting this very podcast. My name is Wendy Charles McGuire. Thank you for listening and let's get to it. Welcome second wind. I have two fabulous people with us today, Diane Dirks and Rick Boyles. And I'm going to let them each introduce themselves because they have very many credentials that they both have, but then they brought them together to create a really cool podcast called Co-Parenting Dilemmas or Co-Parent Dilemmas. And they each have some businesses and some really interesting things coming up that I definitely want you all to be aware of. And the reason why I reached out to them is because we had Lisa Decker on from Divorce Town USA. And it was very interesting. My cousin going through this crazy, ridiculous, over, I mean, we're getting close to a million dollars on this, spent on this divorce, and it's not, it's not getting any better. And we're going on year two. And I didn't understand. And then I look around and people my age, 50s and even older, get divorced. And Lisa had shared, well, yeah, gray divorce is a thing. And there's a, a huge population of people that get divorced as they get older. And then the whole the whole system of the big business of divorce was crazy to me. And then I, she told me about these two and that they're part of this new wave of looking at divorce and how to stay out of the legal system as much as you can and giving people the tools to figure it out that the lawyers and just going to a lawyer isn't going to fix the problem. So their podcast is great. I sent it to my cousin and his hopefully soon-to-be ex-wife, and I don't know if it helped, but it helped me listening. <laughs> so <laughs> it's a great podcast. I suggest anybody interesting. And also, if you're, not even, if you're not even getting divorced or you know somebody that is, it's a great podcast to share, but also just for your own knowledge and different ways to look at parenting and different viewpoints. They've had the kids of divorced parents coming on to share what, how, it, how it hit them. So it's really interesting stuff. So welcome today, Diane Hello. and Rick. Thank yes. you, Wendy. It's a pleasure Absolutely. to be on your show. And I love the name of it, by the way. Oh, thank you. Thank yeah. you. Yes. And so I, you... I thoroughly enjoy this. Yeah, let's go. You want to start, okay. Diane, and tell sure. us a little bit about you, sure. your introduction? Probably my credentials mean less to people than the fact that I've been through divorce myself and a single parent. And so having had the experience is probably what led me to work in this field. But many, many years ago, I worked mainly with single parents. As a single parent, I felt like I needed to kind of reach out and not only get involved in single parenting groups, but then I began to teach and, and learn more and wrote a single parenting column at one point in my career. And then that sort of morphed into me doing something more professional instead of just on a volunteer basis. And I'm dating myself, but I'm talking about the 90s right now. So <laughs> I got involved in uh, mediation 
and ended up really enjoying the mediation process because I wasn't offered that opportunity during my divorce and saw how important it was for people to have some skin in the game and be able to negotiate some of their own issues rather than just letting a judge decide. That led into me starting a nonprofit called the Center for Navigating Family Change in the, the Atlanta area. And that put me in front of a lot of people. I think I calculated once that I had been in front of 50,000 co-parents when you put it all together in the many years, oh the many God. years that I taught classes for the court. And then I met Rick, I don't know, 10 years into that. And Rick is a great trainer and he came on board to help me with some of that training. So we've known each other, I don't know, maybe a decade. So it's been this progression. And if you talk to most divorced parents, you'll find out that the divorce is kind of a line in the sand place for them in their life. And then they have to figure out, like you talk about on the show, how do I navigate this new life for some people that they never expected? And for other people, mm -hmm. they actually initiated themselves and then went, uh-oh, <laughs> what do I do now with my life? And so people get a divorce for all kinds of reasons, but mainly for peace and some freedom. And unfortunately, when they have children, after the divorce is over, they don't find the peace that they thought they would because they're dealing with a high-conflict co-parent. So that kind of became my mission in the nonprofit that I was running, not only just to teach through the court system, but we began doing a lot of co-parenting services, parenting coordination, just working with co-parents. And that introduced me to a lot of the craziness that you talked about in your, in your intro. This was, you know, you had to be kind of willing to throw yourself into crazy and have thick skin to do this work. But I did it because I saw these kids just stuck in the middle. So that has led us into doing a lot of high conflict co-parent work. And as I've trained other people in the organization to do the work as well, I've kind of got less hands on and more in the management, which freed up my time to do something really fun like this podcast. And so I've, Rick and I just enjoy it thoroughly because it's kind of like writing a book and the book never ends. So every podcast episode is a new episode, I mean, a new chapter, and just feels like we're not going to end the book. We're just going to keep talking about it. And we're getting such great feedback from parents who say they're using some of the methods that we talk about on the podcast and it's really making a difference in their own personal peace yes yes hi absolutely yes no, rick it's, it has talk been to us a journey i've been involved with conflict both in a corporate world private world court setting for over 25 years i've done i've been a mediator did divorces i too as well with diane have the experience of going through divorce and of course going through that circumstance where you don't have a clue what's going on, where to start, who to ask, what's a good question, what's a good strategy. And you really learn it as you go along. And so as a result of those experiences, I have a company called Center for Dispute Solutions. I work as a parent coordinator, mainly through Diane's organization, where I help navigate parents through their conflict in order to protect the kids from the conflict and the pain that that's causing. And let's see, on top of that, coaching, post-divorce coaching, coaching people through their parenting plans, creating strategies to get through some of those terrible pitfalls. 
it has been very rewarding helping people. And like Diane says, it's the children, helping the children and seeing that their lives get to be calmer because the parents have begun to figure this out. So it's quite rewarding. I'm glad to be a part of it. I'm enjoying every minute of it. And that's, I hope to keep doing it. Yeah. It's interesting too, because when you think about kids and divorce, I mean, my head automatically goes to young kids, but adult kids are affected as well. And then you get into, especially in the second wind, you yes. get into grandparenting issues. Like even who knew that was going to happen? Seriously. So thank you both for those great introductions. Let's jump right into it. I would love to find out a little bit about, can you take us through what happens when you're working with a couple maybe that's considering divorce? Do you, do you coach with people considering divorce as well? Or are you in the thick of it? Well, I'm a licensed marriage and family therapist. And so I did a lot of work with individual adults right. and would often have people come in to talk about, should I stay or should I go? And I want to get a divorce. How does that work? And, and that's normal kind of work that you do when you're doing therapy. I think the work that Rick is talking about with parenting coordination, it's court-ordered work, meaning that people have gotten to the place where they just feel like they can't maneuver or navigate anymore because they both feel the other one is difficult. And the purpose of a process like parenting coordination is to prevent, or not prevent, but give people another option besides the court. So unlike going to a mediator, which is sort of a one-time and done, or even going through a, to a therapist, which is usually individual or, or family work, you hook up with a parenting coordinator really for the lifetime of your child's childhood. That doesn't mean you're seeing them that whole time, but we do some pretty intensive work in the first year or year and a half with them to get them on the right track, learning how to use the protocols that we put in place, helping them set boundaries, helping them know how to, to execute the parenting plan without conflict. And then we kind of wean ourselves from them because ultimately we don't want to be their babysitter for the next 10 years, right? We want them to have the skills right. to do it on their own. And then when they hit a bump in the road, rather than calling their attorney, they call their parenting coordinator and say, okay, we might need to come back in for a few sessions to work this out. And that can work really well. Unfortunately, not everybody is even willing to do that. And so because it's court ordered, we do have a little bit of ability to keep people accountable. So we will either work with the parent who's not difficult, if one of them's not and one of them is, and work with that parent to teach them how to deal with this other parent so that they can at least achieve some peace, because the goal is not always get them to get along. The goal is to keep them out of conflict, and one person can often do the right things, hold the boundaries to keep that from happening. Diane, that's really interesting that you said that. It, the goal may not be to have it all no, be kumbaya. it hardly ever is when it's it court-ordered. If they could do that, they wouldn't be coming right. to us, right? So we're always right. going to work on a parallel strategy, meaning just minimize conflict, minimize interaction, minimize negotiation and flexibility, you know, just follow the plan and live your lives. When you have a really toxic parent, though, oftentimes we can't make them be successful. We try to work with the other parent to see if they can do some things on their end, which we've had great success with that. But our last resort, but it is a resort, is to write a report that it, to the court to inform them that we got a difficult person here who isn't interested in co-parenting. 
and let the court decide what to do with that information. So I always tell the people in my organization, you're always going to be successful for those kids because we are going to do one, two, or three things. We're either going to move the couple along together to be better, we're going to at least move one person along to be better, or we're going to have to report to the court that somebody's acting out and it's making it impossible. And from that perspective, it, we don't feel like we ever fail. And that's a pretty good feeling to know we're doing something to help the kids. Yes. What do you think, Rick? I, it, most How people don't work? even know of a par parallel opportunity. They think that they're, and a lot of the messaging out there from the culture and from poorly informed professionals is that you, we have to get along for the benefit of the kids. And it usually exposes one parent to abuse, uh, to a controller, to a narcissist. And that just makes one person's life miserable. They keep telling them, you have to cooperate, you have to cooperate, you have to cooperate. When in reality, cooperation is just one possible way of parenting successfully in a separated household. So it, getting the information out there and then giving the people resources to be able to apply it, that literally makes a difference in their lives as adults and in their children's lives is just very important. We talk a lot about the double bind, and that is when you're dealing with a difficult parent and you're trying really hard to get along, right? You want to get along, so you be nice. Gee, I'm pretty sure if I'm nice, I'll get nice back. Somehow we're taught that as children, and that's is a good mm -hmm. thought if the other person has similar values that, uh, that you do or is willing to do that give and take. But divorces are made of people that don't do that well, right? So, you know, if we, if we could do that, we wouldn't be divorced. So a lot of divorces, we think uh, probably 20% of the divorce cases have trouble with that kind of quid pro quo or flexibility or, yeah, I'll, I'll do this for you because I'm pretty sure you'll do it for me back. We call that goodwill. Probably about 20% of the couples, because of their history or their personality issues or whatever, are not going to be able to achieve that. So the double bind is, I'm going to be nice to this person, but then they take advantage of my niceness, and they'll take and take and take, and when it's time for me to want something in return, they refuse to give. And that's very frustrating for the person who's trying hard, right? So I'm, I want to be cooperative, but I don't have a cooperative co-parent. So then they put up the boundary and say, well, I'm not going to do anything. Don't ask me anything. I'm going to say no to everything because you hurt me too much. Then they end up in court and that person says, look at her, look at him. They refuse to co-parent with me. And if it looks like you are refusing, then you might get your hand slapped by the judge. So you're sort of damned if you do, damned if you don't. And that was the subject of one of our latest podcasts, yep. actually, talking about a situation where it just felt impossible which is why we call our show the show that helps people uh, with practical solutions to those impossible co-parents. And I think the people on our that listen to our show know exactly what we mean when we say impossible, yes. right? right? Right, Rick? Yeah. Well, yeah. My cousin's right yeah. in the middle of that. Yes. He's he was trying to be nice and and here Imagine. we are and nothing's So it's not changing. about being nice, right, Rick? It's about, you always say this, getting yes. them out of your head. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, let's talk a little bit about that because that can kind of dovetails into everything in our lives is what's going mm -hmm. on in here. Yeah. Do share. 
Yes, getting out, them out of your head. Most of them, oh, I just had a situation most recently where uh, it became clear that the other parent was lying and the children just let it slip. So, you know, the one parent put it two and two together and figured out. And then the question was, should I confront them? And the question itself means they're yeah. in your head too much. You're worrying about the other parent's behavior. You're worrying about what the other parent is doing or not doing or saying or not saying. When really the question is, what do I tell my kids when they tell me something? How do I address their emotional uh, well-being, mental and emotional well-being, and stop thinking about what the other parent is doing or not doing. Well, then someone says, yeah, but what they're doing is hurting my children. Then you need to be talking to your children mm. in a way that addresses their emotional needs, not talking to the other parent trying to change their behavior because you can't control them, but you can help your children. Yeah. There's a lot of assumptions that parents make about motives of the other parent. And they think right. somehow if I figure that out and my kids figure it out, then what? That's going to make it better? You know, just because you have a certain history with this person and you think, well, yeah, I know what their real motive is. And then you find out maybe not. Maybe you don't understand what their motivations are, and then you've built this sort of persona around that other parent, and that can be really damaging to kids. So you have to be careful. Like Rick said, you know, get them out of you. I always like somebody said this in one of our classes. They're renting too much space in my head. I need to yes, evict them. Perfect. <laughs> that's a that's a great analogy. Yes, right. That sounds yeah. really good. But how on earth yeah. do you do it? It's hard enough if you're just as if you don't have a conflict with a, a spouse or an ex-spouse to be just in everyday life. If somebody said something wonky to you or a parent issue or whatever, where you're, you're circling in your head. Yeah. For anyone. I think you have. So how do you do it when the emotions are like You have to put high. that in perspective. And, you know, I don't want to make any blanket statements because there's different variations on you know, someone saying a rude word to you versus someone gaslighting you, right? Those are two very different things. But if we right. put it in the context of somebody who's really toxic, uh, and by toxic, I mean, they seem to have a campaign to try to drive you crazy more than caring right. about how any of this affects the children, right? Then I, one of the hardest things for me to say to a parent is I want you to consider because of their pathology, because of their inability to navigate the social world the way they should, because of their horrible upbringing, whatever their thing is, consider that maybe you're just a number. Consider maybe that it doesn't matter who it is. This is how they treat people that don't agree with everything that they agree with or don't put them on a pedestal like they demand people put them on. If you think of the narcissistic personality, which, you know, is a term that gets thrown around all over the place. We're all narcissistic to some level, right? But those that are narcissistic to the nth degree, to the even pathological or psychopathic degree, you really are just a cog in the wheel of their system, of their, of their mm -hmm. need to get what they want. So you kind of have to tell yourself whenever they do what they do to me, it has nothing to do with who I am. 
It has to, right, it has right. to do with sense. who they are and how they right. need to manipulate me to get something that they want. And I, you know, sometimes people need to go to therapy to kind of really work through letting go. But I thought she loved me. I thought he loved me. I thought, I thought, I thought. When in the end, they were never capable of that kind of love. And that's a really hard thing to accept. And I, I take care when I'm saying that to somebody, make sure they're ready to hear that before I say that. But that is one way to put it in perspective. Why are they doing this? Which is the big question we always get, Rick, right? <laughs> Why right. does my ex do this? Because that's the who they are. <laughs> you know? And, and, right. And sometimes it takes a situation of all, tell me if I'm right, a volatile situation like this, an emotional situation for this to to rear for this part of their personality to actually come full throttle in, in front of you and be visible. My curiosity now is, it sounds like it almost could be, I mean, how do you know the person that you're dealing with on the opposite side? Are you taking sides almost if the other person isn't, isn't agreeable? Do you see what I'm saying? Like, you're like, oh, okay, this person's being narcissistic. This person's doing this. And you're talking to the person in front of you. How do you get to that point? Or how does that work? So, Rick, do you, right. do you know so what I mean? One of the things I'm very sure about your head. right up front with the parents that I work with is, oh, yeah, I'm biased. I'll take side. I'll take a side in a second. But it's always going to be the kid's side. Really? I always tell them, I'm going to ask you to do things okay. that are uncomfortable, inconvenient, and hard for you. And I don't care <laughs> if it's hard for you because <laughs> okay. I'm doing and I'm making choices and I'm heading you down a path that is ideally best for the emotional and well-being of your children in the long run. And I'm going to expect you to be willing to do the hard thing or the inconvenient thing or the more difficult thing. But it does take practice as, as you were, you know, how do you get them out of your head? You've, it, it's a different way of thinking. You got to practice putting on another lens all the time and keep re shifting your focus back to your kids, which takes practice. You're going to get it wrong mm -hmm. uh, many times, but if you just keep practicing, they do get evicted eventually and they stay out eventually. You're the one, you're the one that so has do you have control like, of the keys in the space in your head. You can change the locks and keep them out. Okay. Do you have an example of, of how you've worked with someone and you saw it from, they totally took occupancy in their head and they were totally sprawling and then you yeah, were able so, to get them out. Uh, Can you give yeah, us one that of the, One area? of the big conflict cases I had, both parents are sitting, and this was back before COVID when we were both in the same room at the same time. And they're both trying to convince me that the other person is a horrible human being and that somebody needs to protect the children from this person. And they're both doing this back and forth, back and forth and to each other and accusing and pointing wow. the finger. Okay, and I'm, I'm structuring uh, the, the communication. Okay, okay. The message is always the same for me. I need one person in this room who's willing to do 51% more of the work than the other parent because your children will do well if one of you figures this out. 
And then as that begins to sink in, it starts to mm -hmm. become this competition. I'm going to be the one who's done to do this for the kids. No, I'm going to be <laughs> the one. I had just the other day, I was working with uh, two parents and I'm communicating to the one this message. I only need one. And the other parent is sitting there quiet, right? And it's a difficult decision that has to be made by one of them. And so when it came the other parent's turn, I turned to them and asked, so what would you like to do? I will do blank, blank, blank for the sake of lowering the stress of my children. I mean, the competition was clear and they decided they were going to do it just to win, <laughs> but the children won. <laughs> so it, it can be done yeah. and it does work. I have an interesting story from way back. I had a client who their child had ADHD and they were having to exchange medication and that kind of thing. And there was a clause in their parenting plan that said that neither one of them were allowed to show up at the other parent's house unannounced. There had been some issues with that during the divorce process. And the judge said, no, you don't go unannounced. You text first. Well, dad had dropped the kids off and then at mom's and then realized that he forgot to get the medication there. So he went back home, got the medication, didn't text her, thought, you know, it's 10 minutes after the drop off, I can just show up. And she, he's got the kids in the car. He shows up at the door. Mom opens the door, starts yelling at him. You violated the parenting plan. This is ridiculous. I'm going to call the cops. She calls the cops. He come, they come, they don't do anything really because, you know, civil matter, you know, go work that out in court. But, right. you know, I'm thinking about the poor children sitting in the car watching dad and the police. Well, the cops. <laughs> yeah. The medicine. So, but okay, that's probably what her, and I've had attorneys tell me this, that they tell their clients to call the police just to have a report or record of it. And that boggles oh. my mind because they're not thinking about these poor children sitting in the car. And I can't remember how old the children were, but they were smaller enough that make that traumatic. Poor kid with ADHD sitting there thinking, this is all my fault. If I wasn't, you know, like this, then this wouldn't have happened, you know, because I have to take this medicine because that's exactly where yeah. they go with it. So Rick and I often teach people to... I don't care what the situation is, one of you has to think of the children in the moment, even in a crisis situation. And neither one of them were thinking of the children in the moment. Dad could have right. dropped the kids off somewhere to school or wherever to somebody else's house if he absolutely needed to get that medication over there. But what we say is hand the medication over say goodbye, wave to the kids in the car, see you later, everything's going to be fine. And then go in your house, call your attorney, say, well, he did it again. And then, you know, put that down in your things to put on the list someday if you under, ever end up back in court. And then decide with your attorney, what do I need to do about that? But it was completely handled wrong. And so one of the clauses I, I always had in my parenting coordination agreement, and I don't know if Rick does or not, said, I am not your babysitter. Don't call me when there's a crisis. I expect one of you to be mature enough to know how to protect the kids in the crisis okay. moment and then do whatever you need to do later. And then we'll talk about it yeah. in our next session. But neither one of you can do the right thing in the moment and be a mature adult and making a mature decision and in, in service of your kids, it really calls into question whether or not you deserve to have these kids. <laughs> did you all, did it take some time for you all to figure that system out? Yeah. 
you know, working I mean, with I've been doing it so long. I don't remember when I had an aha moment about any of it, really. It just sort of one thing builds on the next. And Rick and I talk all the time and come up with new ideas and ways. It's amazing how co-parents are like children <laughs> and we're the parents. Really? And you're constantly changing the rules because they're always finding yeah. a loophole, right? And so Isn't you're always having to... You know, we do a lot of things that we've learned to close the loopholes or the toxic one will just find a way around it and violate anyway. So that's really kind of sad when you think about it. But I can see that. And Rick is nodding his head. I can see that they might get in. They might get into the seats or the Zoom call in front of you and kind of revert back to this. Well, mom said I could do this. <laughs> yeah. You know, why aren't you, you know? that you're the mom or you're the dad yeah. or the, and, or they'll treat the judge trying. like the parent. Well, the judge oh, yeah. said, well, that didn't end up in the parenting plan, but you heard him in court or he yeah. or she said this, you know, it's, it, <laughs> it's kind of crazy. But if you think about it, I think we're all susceptible to reverting to children when we're under a lot of stress and we go to that childlike yeah. place. And so I think the purpose of what Rick and I do not only in the work that we do, but on the podcast is somebody in the room, has to be thinking clearly, you know, somebody in the room. And sometimes the only person mm. that is able to do that is the parenting coordinator. And they need right. stability. They need someone in control of the process, not in control of their lives, but someone who's going to say, okay, here's what we're doing next, because they can't think for themselves. They're too emotional. Right. That makes sense. Do you guys have a favorite podcast that you've done that you really think drove a point home or you got feedback from your audience saying, ah, oh, that one really Yeah, helped. it's the one with yeah. the judge. What do you, right? yep. That's probably, yeah. yeah we, we interviewed a judge about a very toxic situation and we kind of wrote, read, read to him the situation and he was very hilarious, but very clear about what he would do. And in fact, he told us, because he's been listening to our podcast and likes it, he said something that we said in one of our podcasts about 14-year-olds. Yes. Remember that, Rick? He said, I actually changed an, an opinion yep. on a case after I listened to your podcast. And I was like, oh, wow. Now, you know, we're having maybe influence that's a little bit scary. That's amazing. But, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know. but, but what you do is is is... It's so needed yeah. and it's okay if, if things, the system does need to change yeah. a little bit is what I'm gathering from all of this and from other podcasts that the kids really aren't, the, the kids still aren't getting the thought process that they need to be part of yeah. in the divorce generally. I think we're like, unique in that our audience is combined of co-parents and professionals. Because I think what we give to professionals is a way to talk to their clients. And, you know, these aren't things you learn in therapy school, you know, <laughs> and these aren't things you learn in law school. Right. Just like doctors may not be the best nutritionists right. around because. So I wish they were, they were taught more in how to deal with difficult personalities and that kind of thing. But, you know, there are more important things, I guess, in law school. So I find that a lot of attorneys appreciate the feedback that, you know, or not the feedback, but the, the concepts, the concepts that we give out because yeah. it gives them a different way to talk to their clients instead of, or else they can just say, go listen to this podcast, you know, 
which we appreciate as well. Yeah. So, yeah. It's a tool. It's a tool that helps people and they can listen to it on their own time in their own private way and get out of it. Like they can actually like sit there and absorb the information without anybody pointing at them saying, you need to do, you need to do, you need to do. And they can just take it in. Rick, do you have oh, it would a be the particular favorite? Yeah, definitely. Yes. I would probably it's the judge say as well? the second most important one that people find valuable is the ones we've done on narcissism. Yeah, they all feel as though they're having to really? deal with a very difficult person. And so how do I respond to them? How do I create a healthy divorcing boundary with this person? And we have some pretty specific things to say and respond and tools that people have found helpful. Yeah. What would be the most, like if there was one thing that you could tell someone, if you only could tell them one thing about dealing with a narcissistic person, what would that be? Generally speaking, I'm gonna pass this off to, to Diane in a second. I would say use the email protocol, structured email protocol that we teach. But Diane, in a lot of the episodes that we do, I'd say all of them, Diane has excellent mantras that she creates, responses to how to word something, how to say something. I mm -hmm. would say that finding that mantra is probably the most important one. Diane, you're really good at that. Thank you. I think one of the things that I want people to say to themselves a lot is I can't get in divorce what I didn't get in marriage. People get a divorce and they... <laughs> wait, wait, say that again. That's huge. I can't get again. in divorce what I didn't get in marriage or in the relationship. So people get a divorce and somehow think I'm going to now make him or her be different or it's going to be better. It it's actually gets worse. There's no motivation. There's no accountability anymore, at least when you're married. Both people want something out of the marriage so you can use that as leverage, right? Yeah. <laughs> Once you're divorced, there's yeah. no leverage. Unfortunately, people use the kids as leverage, which is horrible. But if you're not prone to doing that, there, there's no reason for anybody to cater to you or do whatever you want to do. But I find that people make that a mistake a lot. Like they think now that we're co-parents, I'm not going to be the same person. And you're going to be the same person mm. times 10 now, you know, look at the reason you got a divorce and multiply that by 10. And that's what you can expect. So I find that a lot of people who have gotten a divorce, or I remember, and this may be where your cousin is, Wendy, when people go through a long drawn out divorce, I would hear them say, had I known what this was going to mm. do to my bank account, my children, I may have stayed just long enough for the kids to be gone. And then I, because I kind of knew he was going to be a nightmare of a co-parent. All the signs were there that she was going to be toxic. She was toxic in the marriage. Why would I think she wouldn't be toxic? You know? So I think that's one of the mistakes people make, not that they get a divorce, but that they erroneously think that somehow their co-parent is going to be friendly or different or suddenly show up on time when they were late the entire marriage, you know? <laughs> Isn't or they're going to be good with money. And one of the reasons you divorce is because they were draining the bank account. And then you wonder why they're late on the child support. You're, none of it makes logical sense that you would think that way. So that's one of the mantras that's that I think you need to repeat quite a bit to yourself. One of my favorite when a parent is sharing a so-called opinion, and I would put air quotes around that, and the opinion usually is very instructive, right? You need to do this. You need to do that. You know, Johnny needs to go to bed at nine instead of 10. Sally needs to brush her teeth three times a day. All of those things people want to defend. And one of the worst things you can do is defend 
yourself because if you know you're doing the right thing in your own home, just keep doing what you know to be right or what's okay for you. Defending really just kind of chips away at who you are. Every time you defend yourself, you question yourself no, no, again, no. And, and that's not good for the soul. So I tell that's right. good for every in every scenario of life, not that's just right. Divorce. So I tell people, just say thank you for your opinion. I'll take that into consideration. Period. I don't tell people to ignore the email because when you ignore toxic people, they send you a, a worse email, right? <laughs> well, and for my cousin, every time there's an email, it ends up costing him twenty, thirty thousand dollars right. $30,000. But, you know, to say, oh, thank you for sharing your opinion, I'll take that into consideration. And then they share some more and you say, thank you for your opinion, I'll take that. You know, it's kind of like I teach parents of young children, if you become a broken record, you'll win. Mommy, I want that candy. No, not till after dinner. Mommy, I want that candy. No, not till after dinner. And I don't care how many times you say it, eventually they'll learn that they're not going to wear you down. And that that's what the rule is. And then they probably won't ask you so much next time because they know that you stick to your boundaries. So one of the mistakes people make is they make unrealistic threats. You know, I'm going to take you to court and take the kids away. They're not going to do that. But uh, that doesn't really go anywhere. But if you say, thank you for your opinion, I'll take that into consideration. I'm setting the boundary for myself. I'm saying, I hear you. I appreciate that you have an opinion and I will take it into consideration. And then you do what you need and, to do. And nobody feels any wonky way and about it. Respectfully. And yes. I can, right. And, yeah. and that, that usually helps people stay with their own values. You know, I've had people crying in my office saying, you know, everybody in my world loves me. My parents love me. My family loves my friends, my church member, everybody, every community I'm around seems to get along with me. All my workmates love me. There's this one person in my life called my ex who seems to be the only wow. person that hates me and they can't get over it. And I always say, well, then I want you to look at your values and how you are around all those people that love you. And that probably is who you are. And so don't let them make you somebody different because what they'll say is I hate myself yeah. and how I respond to this toxic person. I don't like who I am. Well, stop that. Be who you are. Mm -hmm. Why does their, and I know this is a, a big giant question, but why does their assessment mean so much to you? That a lot of that has to do with the many years of history that you have and all the things you couldn't get in the marriage that you still want so badly that you're still trying to get. And that sometimes takes some therapy to work through that I've got to stop trying to get everything I couldn't get. Actually, there's actually a gal that was on the podcast and I will link it to the show notes who helps people I had a problem speaking with my mother and I hated how I was always talking to her and getting in conflict with her. And I met with this gal who was on the podcast and now it's like I just mm -hmm. shifted. And now I, it's not her, it's me. And that's who she is and this is who mm -hmm. I am. And once you can yeah. get that. And that ah, is, those are all better. cognitive behavioral therapeutic kinds of solutions, which is how I've always done therapy. So what Rick and I are doing is nothing new. We're just taking that concept that has been used for years, decades, to work with people to help change their thinking, which then will help them change their feelings and behavior. And we apply it specifically to co-parents and their children, because we also spend a lot of time teaching them on how to help their children with their feelings. 
and help them think with the logical part of their brain. That's a learned behavior. That's something that kids need to be taught. They're not born with that, but your example can really teach them mm -hmm. every feeling I have matters and I need to run with it and react to it. You know, feelings do matter, but they're often laden with irrational, false ideas. You know, I can feel that my, you know, mother hated me growing up because she never paid attention to me. But when I get older and realize she had an alcohol problem, then I might be able to logically say, maybe it wasn't me. Maybe it was the alcohol driving that, you know. So yeah. we want kids to be able to think clearly uh, about their feelings. You know, if you run with feelings all the time, sometimes you're running with a false idea. And let me let me add to that for a moment, because there's a lot of people yes. in their situation, maybe like your cousin, gee, I wish I had a different co-parent to deal with my situation. So difficult. But if you'll, if, if you'll learn the things that Diane was just talking about and you learn how to create that healthy divorcing boundary with this other difficult person, you are modeling behaviors for your children that is going to last a lifetime for them and could hold in the balance the difference between their success or failure personally or professionally, because I can pretty much bet your children are going to have mm. to deal with difficult situations in the future with difficult people, and your children are going to have the tools probably faster than children who have parents that are doing so well together. So there is a huge motivation. Yes. Yeah, yeah, real life it's experience. A huge yeah, with re yeah, with regard to narcissistic parents, for instance, it isn't because they're narcissists doesn't make them horrible parent unless they're really like on the scale of extreme. But they can be difficult because people that have a lot of narcissism in them have difficulty with empathy. They have difficulty with unconditional mm -hmm. love because it's hard to have unconditional love when your focus is always yourself and. People always say to me, well, their other parent is a narcissist, so, you know, they shouldn't have any time with their kids. That's not true. What's more important is as kids get older, teaching them how to think about their parent so that they don't feel so small or that they don't feel like they don't matter. And that is really has to do with how you parent. It doesn't have anything to do with how they parent. It's kind of counterbalancing what they're getting over there. And so you're never going to be able to teach that to your children, which, by the way, probably won't be needed until they're in their teen years because narcissistic parents do very well with the younger set because they're all about their parents, right? The kids, are, kids put their parents right. on a pedestal till they're about 11 or 12, and then suddenly you fall really hard because <laughs> they're, they're going right, into puberty. Right. And that's okay. when the narcissistic parent really has trouble with that child because suddenly they want to think for themselves. And I just can't deal with that if I'm a parent who needs them to think like me. And that's when you start to see that friction. That's the time when the co-parent or the rational parent or the unconditionally loving parent is going to have to teach that child how to think about their parent, but do it in a loving and accepting way, not a, you know, a blaming kind of way. And you can't do that until you figure it out for yourself. So you have right. to figure it out for yourself or you're going to end up in a campaign against the other parent with your child and that won't serve them well. You know, then, then it'll be us against him or us against her. 
And that's never going to be healthy for anybody. So we really encourage parents, stop thinking about the other parent and their inconsistencies or their deficits. You know, stop worrying about that. Whatever it is, you figure it out so you can help your kids through it. Because that parent, that, yeah, that parent's there for life right? for your kids, right? And empower yeah. the children to think for themselves and look at things from sure. all aspects. And yeah. So you have some really exciting yes, things coming do. up. What do you want to talk about yes, first? Rick, you want to, well, the podcast goes on because yes, that's the book. Right. That never ending chapter. So that's great. And where can people find your podcast? We are everywhere. So Apple, Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts, uh, you can also go to our Facebook page, The Non-Impossibles. And let me say something about that. Since our tagline is, you know, uh, giving practical solutions to those impossible co-parents, we like to call our listeners The Non-Impossibles. So that's also, <laughs> that's okay. all the name, that's the name of our Facebook page. So you can find us on, you know, all the social media platforms. But if you find us on Facebook, Facebook sorry, if you find us on Facebook, uh, you'll see a link to all of the platforms. So it's pretty easy to find. Okay. And then you have a dream team case study. You want it? Let's ah, talk about that. So we, Go ahead, we have, I mean, obviously we get <laughs> confronted with very difficult cases. And we have picked one case that is just by our standards kind of astounding. And what we've done is we put together a dream team of responders, a judge, a psychiatrist, an attorney, and we will walk through this case from their perspective in different individual uh, episodes. So yes, the system is broken, uh, not, well, let's put it this way. The, the court system is not as efficient as it could be. And as a result, it creates some very bad situations. Well, let's talk to some of the experts about ways that we might be able to look at uh, it differently and maybe come up with some better responses. Oh, that's I fully really anticipate cool. that most of them are going to tell us, well, this case is really out there. This isn't the norm. Although I agree with that, that's not what I'm getting on all of the social media groups that I'm involved in and talk to people about their lives. And from the perspective of all of the cases, I think we have in our organization 39 cases going on right now with all of the therapists that we have working on them. And I would say all 39 of them are pretty high conflict. And so, and when we go to conferences wow. and talk to other uh, professionals, we hear the same thing. And so there's, I don't know whether it's just our culture now is so open to acrimony and fighting, or I don't know. I, when I went through my divorce 30 years ago, number one, we couldn't afford to go to court. And I wouldn't have thought to ask mm. my mother for money, right? I wouldn't have thought to mortgage my house to go to court or to get a loan. But I'm I'm just right. amazed sometimes at what I hear. Well, my mother has funded my entire divorce. And then when she ran out of money, then I went to the home equity. When I ran out, <laughs> and I'm thinking, oh, my gosh, there goes the kids' college fund. So I think the culture has kind of changed that we must win and at all costs or else our kids won't be okay. And it's simply not true. So I fully suspect that these professionals are going to tell us that this isn't the norm. And, you know, you picked the worst case scenario and I'm going to beg to differ that 
there are elements in all of these high conflict cases in this worst case scenario that we're going to present. And I've seen them and experienced them too many times. And I've sat with too many individual adult clients crying, thinking, I just need to give up. Maybe I shouldn't even see my children. This is so hard. You know, those are very, very difficult cases. Not everybody has a million dollars. I do a, a support group for women who don't have custody because in our society, that's a big, you know, black mark on your, you socially, right? What kind of mom doesn't have custody of her children? And I would say in almost all of those cases, it's because they just ran out of money. They couldn't fight. Yeah. There was nothing left yeah. to fight with, but there's a lot of guilt. Should I have tried harder? Should I have done something different? So there's something wrong culturally with how we view um, custody or you know, parenting time and what it means. We've put these weird yeah. meanings on it that I think aren't appropriate. So I'm I'm going to be real interested to see how they process that when I say yeah. this is not a one-off case. This is like many of the ones I hear about, and we need to do something differently in them. So we're going to do we're going to do the um, what do we call it, Rick? We're going to present the case on our episode that drops the very last week of yes. October. And then every week in November, okay. we'll have the same case, but every week we'll have a different professional on to explore it with us. The last week of September? No, the last week of October. Released? And then every October. week in November, okay. we'll, in November we'll be, it we'll be will. so it'll okay. be five weeks of really studying this case. What's the name of it going to be? Dream Team Case Study. <laughs> okay. Yeah. It's going to be what it's, Okay. <laughs> Say it like it is, right? The dream team case study. And then Rick, some kind of a journal? We have a a journal, now not a journal that's, you know, hey, tell me what you're thinking today. The journal is formatted in such a way that we want you to learn how to think the way we work through our situations, our cases. So we'll go through an episode and we kind of go through this step process, Diane and I, and we're going to teach you how to do that with a a journal that will, there's an episode and then there's a series of steps to go through. The result being that you'll have time. This will be the practice that we talk about. How do I get that other parent out of my head? Here are some steps. Such a good idea. Diane organized this, planned it, and it's going to be phenomenal. Diane, you want to give them more details? Well, I don't want to give too many details because we're going to talk more in depth about this in a couple of weeks, but we have a method that the acronym is Mm. DRAGON, and that can be slaying your dragon of fear, slaying your dragon of whatever. And I'm not going to tell you what D-R-A-G-O-N means, but that represents the six steps that we would like people to go through. And it's a 12-week journal, so that means that if you're practicing every week how to think you know, not only how we process a, an episode, but then I want them to compare it to something they remember or they're going through currently with their co-parent and try to go through the steps in that particular situation with the idea that if you do anything for 90 days consistently, you're going to change your habits. Because one of the problems right. that we see even in our work is, you know, someone might listen to an episode and go, wow, that's really great. But, you know, five minutes later, they're back to doing it the way they always did it because it's like trying to be on a diet, right? You know, it sounds good. And yeah, I'm going to get up today and eat really well. And then that chocolate cake stares you in the face and then you just take a bite. So we know that, you know, right. we're humans. It's hard to change how we think. 
without practice. And so this was our way of saying, let's get you practicing, not just listening and going, yeah, that's great, but not knowing how to actually do it. And so we're excited. We're going to start pre-selling that journal 1st of October, and we're going to release it to our Patreon VIPs. So we have a group of people that are VIPs, and we're going to release it to them first so they can give us feedback. And then middle of October, it will be available for purchase to the entire public. I love that. And we'll put those, that information okay. in the show notes for everyone who, who's interested. And if there was one thing from each of you that keeps you going on this, it, it, can, it sounds like it could be exhausting sometimes to sit in a room or on a call with, with this mm-hmm. conflict. Yeah. It's exhausting. I can imagine. What is the one thing that keeps you both going? So, Rick, I'll start with you. See the impact for the future. There's one particular case I have that was probably, from every outside point of view, the most difficult case. And I still have those parents that I'm available to, right? Like Diane said, for as long as their children are children. And I, to this day, in fact, every week I get their email protocol and I just monitor it. And the way these two parents interact with each other now, I mean, they they don't like each other any more than they did at the beginning, Mm. but they have learned to be respectful and professional. And they have both figured out a way. What's interesting, both of them have figured out that they're the 51 percenter that is doing the work. And what they don't know is that they're doing it. And it is they think the other one's not. And so the children <laughs> have benefited tremendously. And that, that's yeah. every time I read that email, I'm reminded of where we started and where we are now. It's, mm-hmm. it's incredible. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I have clients that I saw years and years ago, and their kids are adults now, but I still get a Christmas card every year. Thank you for <laughs> helping me or whatever. And one client in particular, I hear from her occasionally says, we had to stop the parenting coordination process pretty quickly. I would say maybe two or three months after we started because her co-parent was impossible, literally impossible. But I taught her some skills about how to interact with him. And she always reminds me that made all the difference that he's still doing what he does, but she's not doing any longer what she used to do. And that just makes it so worth it for me that this person now has more peace in her life. And I can imagine and assume that her kids do as well, because she's no longer participating in what got her to the divorce to begin with. That's fantastic. Oh my gosh, that's awesome. Thank you both so much for your time. I really appreciate it. You've shed some light on a really tough subject that do you have stats? Like what are the stats now for divorce? You mean, do you know? As far as how many people are getting divorced? Yeah. Well, you know, it used to be 50% was the big number. That's actually gone down some. It's in the, it's in the 40s okay. now. But the problem with those stats, and always has been, is they just take the number of marriages in a year and the number of divorces in a year, and then they, you know, come up with it. To me, that there's no real longitudinal kind of statistical data that they say how long does how long do marriages typically last and what we do know that if divorce happens most often in the first five years but you know so I don't really pay attention to the stats but what I'm feeling 
and Rick, you can add this anything to this, is that more and more the conflict is more abusive than yes. it used to be. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Really? Yeah. Seriously? Because I think we give people oh, permission. No. I think our society, I mean, look at look at social media. And maybe I'm getting too old, That's but true. I'm just appalled sometimes what people are willing to say to one another on social media. And so if you take that culture, you know, when I was going through a divorce, we didn't have social media and we didn't have cell phones. We had an answering machine that when you push play, the whole house heard it. So I think we were very yep. judicious about how we left messages for one another because the kids might hear, right? And you couldn't just I, fire something right. off the minute it happened and you didn't have time so to process I, I, it. I, I'm really right? concerned about the level of freedom people feel to be toxic now. And, you know, well, so that's a good point. Don't, don't know that's what to really do about point. that. We've yeah, one of the statistics that we we play with often the no we have taught for a number of years that the the percentage of separated parents that can do a cooperative style was thirty percent, but I think since the last conference, the most recent numbers are about twenty five percent. So there's yeah. more conflict out there oh, than no. there is. And we hope about 50% of people can do a parallel style and, and muddle through and, and do okay for the kids. What we worry about is that bottom 25% who can't get past whatever they can't get past. And it ends up hurting the children. Well, and these are the kids, yeah, and these are the kids that end up being the adults that end up being, you know, the cycle yeah. just continues yeah. and the toxicity doesn't So if stop. you think you're in the 25%, so listen to our podcast. Yeah, listen to the podcast. Never, there's never too much information. There's just not. So I am happy to bring this to light and I want everyone to go listen because there's going to be something you're going to learn in your podcast. And I'm not divorced, but I know people who are, and I think we all do. So maybe even if you're just talking to your friend and you've listened to one of your podcasts, which I was able to share with my cousin, some tips that I picked up that I said, well, actually, Maybe you want to look at it this way, right? And it helps if you are able to give somebody some some feedback from people like you. You're sure, because they the may right be too direction. emotional, and you can interject some of the logical. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. absolutely. Well, thank you both so much for your time today. I really appreciate it. It's yeah. nice yeah. to thank see you, Wendy. You both. And you're so welcome. You're so welcome. And until next time, breathe in your second wind. Thank you for listening today. I hope that something you heard made you smile, made you think, and made you feel. If these incredible stories empowered you, awakened you, or left you feeling inspired, make sure to share with a friend and write us a review on iTunes so we can continue to change lives through this content. Make sure you tag us while you're listening on our Facebook group, My Second Wind, or hit the link in the show notes to join the conversation. Until next time, go ahead and breathe in your second wind.